0: It's time to get after it. You're going to jam your legs down and hyperextend your ankles, and then shoot back up and lock your knees in place.
1: Not one of those things sounds right to me.
0: Welcome into the Upper Left Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Jack Anderson, and today on the show, we got Connor Harris, PRI wizard and trainer out of the Portland, Oregon area. Portland, one of my favorite cities. Connor, one of my favorite people. He brings a lot of knowledge to the table and today we talked a lot about gait uh, and the pri concepts surrounding gait uh, we talked about the nervous system and peripheral and central vision and then went into a great discussion about some of these speed concepts from a Barr. bar um, connor does a beautiful job in this podcast just breaking down some very complicated things into simple terms uh, and i think a lot of coaches are going to be able to take a lot away from this and really make things their own, which I think is very important. Um, honestly, out of all the podcasting I've done over the past seven years, this has probably been one of the most fun podcasts I've ever done. Highly encourage you to take a listen to it. Without further ado, here he is, Connor Harris. Connor, thanks a lot, man, for uh, for for hopping on and uh, and chatting with me here tonight. Um, I feel like we've had so many good conversations over the last couple of weeks, both in person, over text, all that kind of stuff, and. Uh, you know, we, uh, we needed to do this so the people could hear what we had to say.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We've, uh, we've talked so many times just like, you know, over the phone and in person. And it's unfortunate, like we couldn't record previous conversations because they were so good. But uh, it's good that we're sitting down and actually like having some good discussion because I remember we, we were in this Starbucks <laughs> for like two hours just, you know, talking and like shooting the shit. But it's good to, you know, actually have some, some real discussion on a podcast. So I'm excited about this
0: yeah, people were uh, people were taking notice of our passion there in the Starbucks. Mm. You might have even scored a client out of it. It was hilarious. So, uh... You know, we're just kind of—it's funny. He's like, "What are you guys even talking about over here? You got the pelvis and the rib cage. Like, I don't even know right. what the hell's going on." And then he like <laughs> asked you for your number. It was great.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so. yeah. Oh, that was great. Yeah, I feel like people like sense that we were very passionate about what we were talking about, and uh, I think yeah. the coffee really helps uh, jack up our energy levels. So <laughs> <laughs> I think that helped. <laughs> Mine was decaf, but anyways. Oh yeah, no, that right was there. a me- that was me then.
0: <laughs> yeah, freaking Ash Wednesday, man. Had to go. Had to go all in on the fast. It was not a lot of fun. Yeah. I'm not one to fast very much so uh
1: but anyways
0: i wanted to i wanted to dive right into to one of the the hot topics i think in the pri world and then i think honestly something that you know for those of us that know pri sometimes i think it's hard for performance-based individuals to understand the importance of some of these breathing drills these resets stacking a rib cage over a pelvis like And it makes sense. We just don't see the correlation because it's so slow moving and tedious. It doesn't look like performance at all. We don't see Mm -hmm. the benefit to it, but I think gate, everybody understands that gate is something that happens when you walk and then all of a sudden you speed it up and it becomes running or jogging. And then all of a sudden it's sprinting and we can easily relate to those type of things on a performance end of the spectrum. So um, just kind of take me into what we've talked about with gate. You certainly opened my eyes to a lot of things with it. And just some of the things you're looking for, some of the things that typically happen in gate and then, What we can kind of do to um, improve it?
1: Sure, yeah. So um, I think good gait training is good weight room training. So uh, when I think about what I'm doing in the weight room with a client or athlete, I'm thinking about. Uh, their gait pattern, because whatever muscles you want to turn on in the weight room, whichever ones you want to facilitate, those positions are going to be directly related to gait. So for example, like when we strike the ground with our heel, uh, we want our hamstring to turn on to posteriorly tilt our pelvis back. So that would begin the process of loading our weight onto that side that we just stepped on. So if I want to go after someone's hamstrings, it would therefore make sense to have their heels be in contact with the ground and have there be more of a focus of feeling those heels. So I'm not going to have them, you know, have their weight on their toes if I'm going to go for hamstring recruitment, because that's not what the what we're used. That's not how our foot is set up. You know, that's not how gait works. That's not how our body works. So when we want to train hamstrings, I want to have a slight posterior tilt. I want to have them feeling their hamstrings on the ground on a wall, uh, just something that has like a hard surface, like I'm not going to do this on like a Bosu ball or necessarily too much of an open chain exercise, like a leg Mm -hmm. curl is great. But at the end of the day, uh, if I'm really if I'm training an athlete or someone who needs to, you know, make a neurological association between their hamstring hitting the ground, a posterior pelvic tilt, um, then I'm going to do that in a closed chain environment where their heel is in direct contact with the ground. So that's just one example of how you can think of gait in terms of weight room training and how we can facilitate good positions through thinking about what is the pelvis doing in relation to where the foot is on the ground. And then we can kind of go from there. And I think it's a really effective way of going about things because really much of athletics is gait. If you think about it, like every single time you take a step, every time you plant your foot, there is some relation to gait going on there. So ultimately that's what I'm concerned with because that's what athletes do. That's what my clients do. And that's what just so much of our life is made up of is just walking and running and just being a human.
0: Now, do you think, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to dive right into the weeds here. Uh, yeah. Do you think um, with, with the way you're just talking about hamstring recruitment and everything, mm-hmm. is that a good place, you think, to start? I mean, obviously we know, uh, like you're saying, a lot of people are in patho PC where both sides of the pelvis are interiorly rotated. We can't really – we struggle to find hamstrings on both sides or, or, or mm-hmm. most of us do. Um, is that kind of a place where you're going to start, that stance phase of gait?
1: I am yeah yeah because generally the progression is you want someone to have sagittal plane competency before frontal before transverse and it goes in that order because think about like how complicated joint actions get when you get to the transverse plane when there's rotation actions being coupled on top of frontal plane actions being coupled on top of sagittal plane actions so it doesn't make sense to have someone go straight into a transverse plane motion with external rotation abduction and all that stuff if you don't first have the ability to flex and extend at your pelvis uh, or at your rib cage, for example. So that's why it's like we got to go after the super basic stuff first because there's no way that you're going to be able to do a proper toe off where your pelvis is uh, going into extension into more of an AB ducted state uh, along with um, that sort of anterior pelvic tilt motion. If you first can't get your pelvis to go and do more of an anterior tilt and out of it effectively. So that's why I talk about the hamstrings on Twitter, Instagram so much, but that's just because it's a very easy way for people to understand the concepts I'm talking about without layering too much on top of it.
0: Yeah. And I like what you said about the open chain thing with like a hamstring curl, because Mm -hmm. I don't know about you, but try to, try to posteriorly tilt your hamstrings while you're <laughs> lying prone on a machine trying to do a hamstring curl like correct me if i'm wrong but at least for me that's extremely difficult because yeah. i just it's hard to get in a position you need to be in posteriorly mm-hmm.
1: absolutely yeah and like that's there's nothing wrong with doing that like there's something to be said for like isolation exercises is like great for bodybuilders and being able to recruit more muscle tissue because oh god this is a tangent <laughs> but if you think <laughs> okay yeah but if you think about um if you think about what a compound exercise is, uh, it's going to be a lot more muscles working at the same time. There's, it's just mm-hmm. going to be more taxing on your central nervous system. So it makes more sense than if you wanted to recruit the most muscle tissue possible, going for things in isolation is probably a very effective strategy for that. But yeah. we don't work with a ton of people who have that goal. So for my Purposes for who I work with, and for who a lot of people who are going to be listening to this work with, it makes more sense to do more compound movements because we want intermuscular coordination. We want the muscles working yep. together in unison. But if you're a bodybuilder, if you want to get big and that's your only goal, then yeah, hamstring curls are probably a fantastic exercise. <laughs> yeah, they're so, great.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you really want to feel your hamstrings horribly, then yeah, do yeah. 500 of those, and you're good to go. <laughs> exactly. Um, uh, I'm not going to lie. I mean, I still have my meathead days where I'm like, I don't care where my pelvis is. I'm going to go in there oh, and crank yeah. out a billion of these to just fry my hamstrings. So
1: I just <laughs> made a – yeah, that's a great point you made, actually, because I just was – on Instagram, I made a post about this the other day where it was like, we talk about this pelvis stuff, we talk about this breathing stuff, but you know what I did oh, today? Yes, I, I just went in the gym. I did some squats, I did some bilateral squats, I did some chin ups, I did some bench press, and it was super I extended. Just went, Damn, I just got yeah, yeah. out of there. <laughs> it's <just> like, <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> like, the ultimate thing that matters at the end of the day is how much variability you have. And it's okay if you go yeah. into, you know, a big bench press arch, if you can get out of it. But that's the problem yeah. is that so many people that you and I work with, like they're just unable to get out of this extension yeah. and humans yeah. are amazing compensators. So it's very hard to get out of extension if you're only training an extension. But like people like us, we're aware that, okay, I need to not balance out my system. But unfortunately that's not how many people think, but hopefully, yeah we start to no, kind of transition into that
0: even working with you. And then uh, I, I did a, an hour with Zach couples a couple of weeks ago and mm-hmm. um, it just, it opened my eyes a ton, like just to, I was aware of these concepts, but I wasn't aware how badly I was butchering some of them until I worked <laughs> with you guys. And now it's like, Oh shit. Like, yeah, I I'm not very good at uh protracting my shoulders and expanding my posterior mm-hmm. rib cage without remember, we were talking about this without yes. without rounding my lumbar spine. Like when I get into a uh like a, a quadruped uh you know, hip like hip tilt that I'm trying to get, you know, when I'm on all fours, I, mm-hmm. everybody calls it something different. Your feet are on the wall where I'm trying to get my heels in and get some hamstring and yeah. whatnot. I was Tilting to the point where I was just getting a bunch of lumbar flexion and all of a sudden, you know, I'm like looking at it today, Mm -hmm. like capturing some of it on video and I'm like, wow, I went like to the end range, like the other way, you know, and um, that can be a problem too. I don't know if you know exactly what I'm talking about here, but where everything kind of gets crunched up like an accordion as opposed to actually being in neutral. I'm just in ridiculous amounts of flexion. You know? I
1: am so happy we are talking about this. <laughs> this is a great. Oh, really? Topic. Oh, my God. <laughs> you hit the nail on the head. So, when people, the people that think, the concepts that we talk about don't work are more way more often than not the people who try these things and they don't have someone watching them do them and then they say it doesn't work, but it's so intricate. It's so, so intricate if you've never done it for the first time. And there's so many things to think about. That is the downside to the things we think we talk about. Is there is a lot of things to think about when you execute, even something as basic as like a ninety ninety hip lift. Yeah. You, you can per- make mess it up so oh, easily. So easy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And uh, I'll have, I've had so many people say I'm doing PRI this, FRC that, DNS this, and I'm like, okay, uh, get on all fours and show me a video of you doing just an all four breathing. And they'll do it and their upper back won't move a single millimeter. And it's like, well, you're obviously not doing it right because you're not expanding your posterior rib cage. You're not getting anything there. So we need to do that. And if we can't do that, then all this other fancy stuff you're doing is not going to stick because you don't have the fundamental principles of a neutral spine within your body. You have no idea how to breathe. So- if it's often something very simple too, that's the thing. Like people like to get fancy with going after, you know, like end range isometrics and trying to go after like these small stabilizing muscles. But ultimately if you can't expand your posterior rib cage, if you can't go in and out of flexion and extension, then none of that matters at all. Going back yeah. to the original point of sagittal frontal transverse.
0: Yeah. Now when we talk about these positions, uh, and you're, and you have someone like me, for example, that really strugg- struggles to find like a reference point on all fours. Mm-hmm. I found like the one you showed me where I'm standing straight up and I don't allow my, my height to get any lower. I posteriorly tuck the pelvis slightly and mm-hmm. then reach forward. Yeah, I found that's a position like, yes, I still struggle in it, but I can hit it much better than I can when I'm on all fours. Absolutely. Um, when you're working with people, it's, It's weird because I think we think of everything. Like if I'm on the ground, it's easier. I have more points of reference. But for me, that didn't work, Mm -hmm. you know? So like you have to be creative with how you're doing stuff. I was working actually with my mom this morning with some of this stuff. And I I pulled some stuff out that I'm like, I didn't even know I knew how to do this. Like it just worked out. Okay. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Thinking on the fly. I love it. That's the thing that that's, what's beautiful about these things is they are principles. They are not rules. So if you, well, there's some rules like you, like the sagittal frontal transverse, that's pretty uh, black and white in terms of how things work, but ultimately it is a principles based system. So you can take these concepts of what you need to do with your rib cage. You can take these principles of how the pelvis works and you can apply them to quite literally anything and there's yeah. a lens through which you can look at everything else and it's it's beautiful in a way because you'll be working with someone and you'll you'll just see that uh, oh this person is unable to find their heels because their center mass is so far forward on their toes that they're so extended through their lumbar spine that they can't feel their heels on the ground but it's not yeah. a it's not a get your weight on your heels thing it's a let's fix your pelvis so you can get your Heels on the ground problem, yeah. and that is yeah. the, that is the disconnect that is happening. But if you understand the principles between that, uh, then you can easily start to make these these inferences, and you can start to think of things critically instead of going, "Oh, I can't get into a deeper squat; it must be like I need more ankle dorsiflexion." Well, <laughs> maybe not. <laughs> maybe not, <laughs> um, dude. That's that reductionist mindset
0: to these things. Drives me up a wall. I mean, yeah. we, our entire like, I, I don't know. I feel like our entire field and, and PT and all these you know things that are interrelated to some extent. We have to test to retest, mm-hmm. and if we are just blindly throwing out the same information that we always have and and we're not getting any results, why are we not critically? Taking a critical look at our model, whatever it is, and turning it on its head if things aren't working. I mean, we know for a fact a lot of these modalities that we're talking about to get more ankle dorsiflexion or something like that, they don't work. Yeah. Or they might work for 10 minutes Mm. and then they're gone.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. That's, yeah. I totally get it. And that I think the thing is, is that it's easy to tell someone that you need more ankle dorsiflexion this makes sense why you need more ankle dors- dorsiflexion without thinking the whole picture through and yeah. it's it's hard to to have to change your mindset from the way things have been in the fitness industry for this amount of time to maybe there's another layer we haven't considered before. And yeah. like there's some people that 100,000% will benefit from just doing some ankle dorsiflexion exercises and then they'll have no problem dropping into a squat like they want to. And if that solves your problem, then I think that is 100% the easiest way yeah. to go because then I don't have to explain to you why it's a pelvis issue and then we can just <laughs> move on. <laughs> it like, saves me time. So, Let's do that if that works. But ultimately, if that doesn't work, and there are so many people out there that it doesn't work for, then we have to start approaching things through a different lens or a different perspective or consider other possibilities that could be happening here. And potentially, uh, it could be these proximal structures, the rib cage and the pelvis that are driving problems in these distal structures in the ankle, knee, shoulder, elbow, etc.
0: Yeah, and we... That's the other thing that's interesting to me. I think we think about things in terms of like muscles and uh, and um, how tight they are. And, and we think of everything at a, and you had a post on this the other day, which was great, like thinking about everything in a muscular level. Well, what is dictating the position of these muscles? The bones. Right. What's dictating the position of that? The nervous system and the brain, right? Mm-hmm. And I mean, if we can't think about those things in that sequential order, then obviously we're going to go to the thing that resonates with us the most in our little myopic viewpoint of this whole entire thing called the human body right Mm -hmm.
1: I love to use the example of someone that uh, I made a post about this and it was about how people that have chronic breathing disorders have a very surprisingly high amount of anxiety within their population and because of the physiological things associated with that, let's let's now take that to another level, right? So if you're anxious, that's associated with a sympathetic fight or flight nervous system response. That is your body's on high alert. You're constantly perceiving things as if they could be potential threats to your survival as a human being, because that's ultimately what we're concerned about. So If you are in a sympathetic nervous system state, going exactly right back to what you said about how the nervous system dictates these things, which is definitely true, then we are going to be reflecting a body posture that is more sympathetic or fight or flight. If you're listening to this right now and you're sitting down or even if you're standing, puff out your chest pretty much as much as you can. Like you're a silverback gorilla trying to, you know, respond to a threat. You feel more alert. You feel more wide awake. You feel pretty like, you're like, oh, okay, let's go. <laughs> you know, Like you feel ready to go. But that is exactly the problem. Now imagine being in that state for, you know, 24 hours a day or even like 18 hours a day, even 12 hours a day. What if you were just perceiving things as if they could be a threat to your survival for 12 hours a day, that would probably be problematic. And your body posture is going to reflect that over time. So if you're stuck in this kind of extension bias, because your nervous system is putting you there, which starts with everything I was originally talking about, then we could be holding ourselves in this posture and we're not even aware of it because it's normal to us. And then all of a sudden our back hurts or our knees hurt or something hurts because we are, uh, in this muscular skeletal orientation that is reflective of what our nervous system input is which is fight or flight sympathetic response and it all started because you couldn't breathe very well yeah so
0: that is And this is such a yeah this is such a symptom of of the world we're in today and I hate to be I hate those people that are like well our ancestors ate nuts so that's all we should be eating you know like you know our ancestors did this so we should be doing this too but I think this is actually the one that makes sense. Like our ancestors didn't, didn't have the stimuli that we mm-hmm. subject ourselves to, ourselves to today in our modern culture. And I yeah. think that makes a big difference. Wouldn't you agree, like, in terms of just that constant uh, sympathetic arousal going on?
1: Sean Light did a uh, webinar for my, for my coaches' club, and he made an incredible point about how um, central vision that is looking oh, yeah. at something up close, like your cell phone, for example, which we all do. I do way too much. And <laughs> uh, <laughs> and that is associated with more of a sympathetic or fight or flight response. Now, like obviously the example I gave before that was extremely layered and complicated. And, no, and not everyone's going to be like that. That would be, be a crazy thing to say. But if you're looking at your phone all day, then you would be when your pupils dilate like that. Then that is actually like associated with a sympathetic fight or flight response. And even if that is a low response, if it is chronic and it is repetitive for hours and hours a day, just look at your screen time on your phone. I I don't because I'm too scared. But if you do look, (laughs) you and me both, man. Yeah. Yeah.
0: (laughs) There's a reason why I had a splitting migraine the last 12 hours.
1: Uh, But if you did look and and you could be honest with yourself, then you would see that um, that amount of time you could be putting yourself under a sympathetic state. And there's something very, very relieving and something very, very um, it's like it's something indescribable almost when you spend a lot of time indoors looking at your phone and you go outside into nature or even you just look out your window and you just feel like there's a part of yourself that has been. That has been kind of like, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's just like a part of yourself you know you needed, but you didn't have it until you went outside yeah. or you looked outside. You know it's you know it's
0: funny about that. It's mm-hmm. already cut in, but no, go ahead. This is I haven't told anyone this so this is one of these weird, like I just do weird shit sometimes, man. I'm not gonna <laughs> lie. Like I'm like, oh, I wonder what this'll do. So I just try it. Yeah. So so I I once a week will go on like a lengthy walk as part of one of my That's low awesome. intensity days. And yeah. um, but I found myself looking at the ground a lot you Mm. know just looking right at the ground still kind of using utilizing my central vision so Mm -hmm. i started playing a little game with myself and i started playing a game where you have traffic passing wherever it is you're walking let's say you're on a track and you see you there's traffic across the road i have to guess which which car oh that looks like a toyota model truck there or whatever so i have to look in the distance and just guess what what type of car it is and love that. it's so much better than just you get weird feedback from looking right at the ground as you walk like as soon as you look up you're completely disoriented absolutely and so you know what i'm saying so like, I just play this little game with myself. It feels way better to more productive walk. <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> yes. And that's awesome because you're having to use your peripheral vision more. Like you're using your central vision more because you're looking more outwards into, you know, you're trying to focus on what car is that, but you're still inherently using your peripheral vision more because there is just more in your periphery when you're looking yeah. up. And that is associated back to like, if you're in nature or looking out a window, there's just more options. That is more of a parasympathetic response. So that's why like I think that's not the only reason absolutely not but is one of the reasons why we feel a sense of wholeness a sense of relaxation when we're in nature when we look outside of a window and when we look for if there's a Honda Civic driving up in the (laughs) got (laughs) Um, it (laughs) so um, I think these things matter but we want to look down because it's comfortable and for a variety of other factors like having shoes that suck and taking our our way our sense. Of the floor, like honestly, another tangent here, but like most shoes just aren't very good. Like like those, I was just about to talk about this today, but like those really fresh fly knit socks you got on that have two inches of foam are just like (laughs) they're just like a sensory deprivation chamber for your feet. And if you just wear those all the time, your feet have thousands of, I guess for for an all encompassing term, proprioceptors. Underneath yeah. your feet, and they're so much responsible for giving you feedback from the ground, but you're limiting them inherently if you have two inches of foam underneath your feet, so Absolutely. of course we're going to look down because we have no idea what's underneath us because we have these shoes that are terrible. yeah yeah,
0: no it's all this stuff is crazy, and we'll get to to my thoughts on uh, Darian Barr in a minute, but he does a mm. lo- he has a lot of opinions on shoes and feet. And, um, we'll get into it in a second. That. I don't want to take away from this, this discussion, but sure. it's, it's really fascinating. Uh, we'll, we'll get there in a minute. Hold on. <laughs> we'll get there. Um, uh, before we do get to that though, I do, we'll get back to the original point, which was mm-hmm. gait mechanics. So you now establish some posterior pelvic tilt. Uh, some hamstring reference, some sagittal plane competency.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: When we move on to like the next things, what are you looking at following that? What's the, obviously frontal plane you said, but like what are, let's let's delve into that a tiny bit.
1: Sure, so the beautiful thing is that it kind of does go sagittal, frontal, transverse, and gait if you make it super simple. Um, Just for the purposes of simplicity, I will do that. So sagittal, your heel hits the ground, we roll onto our midfoot, and that is more mid stance. That's single leg stance. That's what. That's when our adductors need to kick on. That's when our anterior gluteus medius needs to kick on. That's when our internal rotators and adductors need to kick on to move our pelvis over our femur to stabilize it so that uh, we are better able to shift our weight. Otherwise, we would just slide our pelvis over our femur and we would basically fall out of our hip if we didn't have internal rotation. So we need those adductors. We need those, uh, anterior gluteus medias to internally rotate us, get our pelvis to shift over our femur so that we're properly stabilized with our center of mass over that foot in mid stance. And is this a, this hip shift is pretty subtle, right? Like there, there's a
0: fine line between just letting the pelvis slide that way and actually shifting into that hip. Right.
1: Definitely, definitely, yes, and uh, that's something that can be trained in the weight room. I talk about it a lot with the with the hip shift, which I think is a very important thing to do in unilateral exercises because it does give us that nice stability of the pelvis over the femur, but uh, after that, you roll onto the ball of your big toe where you begin kind of late stand slash toe off where now you're starting to kick in more a b ductors, more external rotators of your femur and your pelvis is essentially going to begin to slide off of your femur so that when your big toe hits the hits the ground comes into contact there is an association between the ball of your big toe not your actual toe but like the ball just under and that in the inferior fibers of your gluteus maximus kicking on and that is going to be responsible for starting that external rotation moment where you are going to go into more extension where you are going to naturally go into more er and abduction your posterior gluteus medius. Your, there's a million hip external rotators, and there's going to be. A, they're going to be involved in this external rotation process. This is more the propulsion phase, and then you're going to go into swing, where your hip flexors are going to help. You're going to have your external rotators also helping, and then you're going to basically start restart the process of heel strike mm-hmm. again. So if you look at it very, very, very basically, it's you have uh, two main chapters. You have uh, stance and swing phase and then within those there's two sub phases of heel strike mid, mid stance and then you have late stance toe off and then you have swing so if you look at it this way then you can kind of start to understand well if I want glutes in the weight room then what do I want to do you want to feel your big toe on the ground. That doesn't mean your heel comes off the ground necessarily, but that means I want you doing like that John to short foot training thing where you put your big toe into the ground and you're feeling that arch stability because that is going to help you feel more glutes. There's a reason why foot contact and good coaches talk about the feet so much and things like a squat and a deadlift. Yeah, no, that's that's brilliant stuff, man. Um, And I think
0: it really can reshape how we think about uh, think about training. I mean, when you, when you talk about this stuff to me, all of a sudden I think, well, if I'm, if I'm after performance, like not powerlifting performance, but athletic performance, I'm, I'm dialing up unilateral heavy unilateral more than I'm dialing up heavy bilateral, man, you know, just mm-hmm. to accomplish this hip shift that you're talking about and, and to get adductor. But then at the same time, you can also feel on the, on the backside leg, that glute you're talking about as you push yeah. through the big toe, you know? And I mean, you're, you're just accomplishing so much with a split squat mm-hmm. and you can load it pretty fucking heavy, you know, with the, yeah. <laughs> with the bilateral deficit and all, you know? So, yeah. I mean, like to me, it just, you, and then I guess you add in too, I mean, there's, there's guys like Dietz out there. They're saying like, we're subjectively getting better biofeedback from athletes when they finish unilateral plyometrics and lifts compared mm-hmm. to bilateral plyometrics and lifts. I don't know exactly how he's quantifying this, but I mean, when, when someone like Calde's is saying, I'm going to listen to it. Yeah. And I mean, you know, you add these concepts together and you're like, hmm, there's a lot of good things going on with unilateral training, you know?
1: Oh, definitely. Yeah. And I think there's, there's, um, I saw some study that said bilateral training. I can't remember it right now, but there are, there are definitely benefits to bilateral training when it comes to actual like force production off of one leg. But I think that that was just one study, right? So I've yeah. seen way more literature that set, that demonstrates the benefits of unilateral training. Cause if you just think about life, how much time do we really spend with one leg on the ground? Especially if we're talking about athletes, right? Not a whole lot. So with yeah. just that fact in of itself, I am just more prone to wanting to do more unilateral training because really like how strong do really good athletes need to be? They need to be strong. You know, you want them squatting, you know, like somewhere between two and a half, three times their body weight, depending on where like the best athletes are and what sport they're playing. But really like it's not that hard to get someone pretty damn strong on a unilateral exercise, like a split squat, like a lunge. It's just that we don't want to do it because we can't lift as much weight on the bar and it doesn't look as badass. So yeah. ultimately, it, I think a big part of it is an ego thing. But if we can get past that, then we can realize that at the end of the day, do we really need all this bilateral work? I don't think so. I think it would be foolish to get rid of bilateral work. But I think it, it's also foolish to have it take up more than half of our training. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I don't mean to demonize bilateral. I'm not, I, let's oh, don't no. get twisted. Like, no, no. I'm someone that that struggles a lot to not just like, I even in the flexion example, we were talking about earlier, oh, mm-hmm. just go completely to one side. But yeah. I've learned, I think a lot over the last few months to like, let's find this middle ground here. Cause that seems to be where all the smart people are hanging out. <laughs> so, yeah. you know. um, yeah. uh, but no, yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I do think there's benefits to bilateral training. But I, I do – there's something about this unilateral thing. There's something about when we look at gate the way you're describing it that it just all adds up and makes more sense to me. Um, yeah. You know, and then I guess if you don't mind transitioning now into to, to a little bit because I think this ties would in beautifully. I love to. Uh, for those that don't know, Darian Barr is a, a track and field coach guru uh, up in the Northern California area. I think he lives around Sacramento, and I've had the pleasure of, of hanging out with him a couple times over the last few months – and uh, just the way he thinks about sprinting and, and the human body is completely different from, from everyone else. Um, and one of the things, I guess we can just go right into it with this, that he was talking, he's been talking about a lot recently, is just the concept of falling, letting gravity do the work for you uh, in acceleration, well, in running in general, but especially in acceleration. And I think that we've coached it, you know, the, the common way of thinking about coaching acceleration. Uh, at least from most of the other people I see. And again, I'm not saying it's wrong, but they coach it with let's overcome gravity. Let's push through the ground. Let's Mm -hmm. get triple extension. Uh, Let's use the force production that we've created in the weight room and we'll get faster. And I I don't know what I think about all this right now in comparison to that with them and Adarian say, but Adarian comes at it from a different angle. He thinks about let's fall. Uh, gravity is 9.8 meters per second, right? We cannot move a limb on our first step, you know, and in the first few steps of acceleration that quickly, we just can't. So mm-hmm. why don't we allow the shin angle to drop out of our stance and as soon as we, everyone's range and a shin angle is different, so as soon as it drops to a certain point and the range of motion ends, it is now time to go. It's time to get out of that and it's time to let, it's time to fall into the next step, mm-hmm. um, which I find to be a fascinating concept. Because I, I've noticed for myself for the last few weeks when i practice it, when I fall into my first step, it doesn't look super fast. It looks a little awkward, but it allows me to then let my subsequent steps um, add up into something really special, if that makes sense. I never yeah. feel like I have, a, have to reset myself through the first 10 yards of acceleration. If mm-hmm. I'm with a push first mentality in acceleration and overcome gravity and you know, overcome just like we do when we push up through a heavy squat. I'm not really like using timing or anything to my advantage. I'm just ramming the ground as hard as I can. And at some point I'm going to do it in a way that disrupts the timing that goes into acceleration, because let's, let's get, you know, let's not get it twisted again on this acceleration is really all about timing and, and what you can do with it. Once you get to a point where you have to start using max velocity, you know, and if we have to, uh, completely reset ourselves because we're trying to just put too much force in the ground by step six. That's a big problem. You know? Yeah. Um, we were, is, are you kind of following where I'm going with this? I right am.
1: Now? I am. And yeah. for those who are listening, I have not watched, uh, Adrian coach or sprint. And I am absolutely dying to, because, Yeah, you,
0: you need to come up here when he comes up
1: again. It's, <laughs> oh, it's I'm, dope. I'm, I'm just, I'm just so on board with, uh, seeing this guy talk and watching or having him coach me. Because these these concepts are amazing, and I think that they make sense, um, but I would love to feel them for myself. But something we talked about that was really interesting is we were watching a young athlete sprint the other day, and you were describing how he was spending so much time on the ground because of his shin angle, because of the way he was putting force into the ground, and you made a really interesting point. Do you want to extrapolate yeah. on that a
0: little bit? So So we're after – a lot of times we look at positions and then we freeze frame them and we say, that's the position I want. And oftentimes on the first step, it's this fully extended straight line from heel to head on the posterior side. So the spine is straight. Mm-hmm. And then on the front side, we got the front side leg and the opposite arm kind of matched up at 90 degree angles. And it looks great. It looks beautiful. Yeah. But when I, when I watch it, in slow mo, or I or I or I roll it back and watch it a bunch of times. Now that I like think think of things in a Darian's mindset, I watch the shin first. So the shin angle on on this kid drops right, mm-hmm. um, and as soon as it drops, he needs to go. The backside leg needs to come off the ground, and it needs to he needs to fall into the next step. Mm-hmm. But with this pushing triple extension mentality. He continues, and again, I don't want to. I don't want to add time to it. I don't know how long he continues for, but the shin angle drops. The backside leg needs to go, according to Adarian, right? Mm-hmm. But for for this kid, the shin angle drops. He continues to push until he gets into triple extension, and it forces him to pop up. Mm. You know, and uh, between Adarian and everyone, I think everyone wants some relative relative uh, horizontal force projection or yeah. to, to sprint, to accelerate in a horizontal vector at some, you know, to some extent. But that's not happening here with this kid. because Yeah,
1: he, yeah, he was spending a lot of time on the ground.
0: Yeah, a, a, that's not happening for him. So he gets he, – he, the shin angle drops when he continues to push, so now he gets up to the very tippy top of his toe, and the body senses falling, but instead of allowing the fall to happen, he continues to extend the hip and pops up because, yep. oh, shit, I'm falling. I got to get up. And I got a mm-hmm. triple extend and I got to push. So now it becomes more of a front side action instead of allowing the backside leg upon feeling that falling to then pull off the ground. Darren calls it remove and replace. So your backside leg will mm-hmm. you actively think about I need to get this off the ground because as soon as I get it off the ground, I fall. And so then, boom, I'm using gravity and that 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 leg I just that backside leg I just pulled off. I got to hurry up and get it. To, to the front side as quickly as possible and initiate the switch. So instead of having like this front side elongated switch where I pop up, I stay down because I am allowed my, as soon as my shin angle hits its lowest point in, in your, your given range of motion, the backside leg is then removed and it low heel recovery because of this, obviously, because we don't have time now mm-hmm. since we're falling. We don't have time to do this big front side drive that we see all the time, right?
1: Okay. Yeah. So
0: the backside leg has to recover lower and then boom, it has to come on, on, onto the ground. Now the mm. trick to all of this is, this is the kicker. Obviously we're falling. We're not pushing so much, right? Yeah. But we have to catch the fall. We can't just sink into the fall. It's like a bad plyometric where I just land all jelly-like and go into this deep squat that we mm-hmm. don't want to see. Like all of a sudden stiffness has to kick in. And that's the beauty of this is Adarian talks about as that front side leg comes forward and we get into stance phase on that side,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: guess what turns on the oblique? The Mm -hmm. oblique has to fire immediately upon contact. So there's timing. Boom. As we time that upright, boom. Now we're in the ground. We maintain that horizontal force vector. The backside leg removes again and we just keep going. And eventually we come to a point where, (laughs) eventually we come to a point where we're, we're just sprinting. You yeah. know, and we never once thought about pushing or triple extension. Triple extension is more of a byproduct. I think it's one of those things that we look at. It's something that like we're attracted to because of how it looks like yeah. off, initial, it looks off the initial sexy. start. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, but if you're doing that and you're not allowing yourself to fall, which most people do if they're just shooting for triple extension, you're not getting anywhere. Like you're not, you're, not, um, you're not using gravity to your advantage. You're not using the ISO of your oblique. You're not using timing. You're just pushing as hard as you can. Yeah. Sorry, that's very long-winded.
1: But. No, that was awesome. That was awesome. <laughs> yeah. So uh, what cues would you use then? Like how would you, like that, I get it. Like I think objectively to me, or that would, that would not be being objective at all. Subjectively to me, that makes sense. <laughs> that makes total sense. Uh, but so how the, would yeah, you, the cues. yeah, how would you cue that? um
0: so i've mostly used this with myself i haven't used it with a ton of people yet uh the big takeaways for me a is big on utilizing the transverse arch of the foot so i've been doing all of my high intensity sprinting excuse me i've been doing using utilizing all my high intensity sprinting uh barefoot because the shoes take away your ability to actively press the ball of the big toe and the ball of the pinky toe down and if you can press mm. both of those down, it forms this nice little arch along the bottom of your foot, along the balls of your feet. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So that arch is great, but shoes nowadays, they're so soft in that area, it's almost impossible to get to get the arch set. And then once you get the arch set to, uh, to go along with the falling action that you're trying to, to, to um, feel, I guess, as you run you you need to roll. So he talks about twisting the foot around the big toe. So slowly I rip each ball of the foot off of the ground until all that's left is my big toe. And then I just go into the next sprint. This is the other issue in a soft shoe. He's very big on insert carbon fiber inserts that mm-hmm. promote uh, setting the transverse arch, but in a soft shoe, as soon as you go to try to twist the foot, there's nowhere to twist or nowhere to go because the shoe is so much give you you can't put any input into the ground with it. You know what I'm saying? Because it's just being absorbed by the shoe and the shoe is not actively allowing you to push and twist into twist the foot around the big toe on toe off. Does that make
1: sense? That makes, yeah, I feel you. I feel you. What if you have, go ahead.
0: Oh, I got, I got one more. So there's, I'm thinking about transverse arch so I use my left foot in front on my and a three point stance, mm-hmm. and so I set each arch, and then I will roll. I think about rolling off the left foot and falling into my right foot, and then firing the the the, the oblique. Now, Grant, I'm not thinking about this every time, but right. that is kind of the structure of my thinking on on starting uh, right now. And I found that it works very well. Uh, it enhances like a low heel recovery. And I can get my foot right in the ground. There's no wasted movement that I would feel when I was going for more of that triple extension push where it feels like there's just such a long pause between driving the backside leg up and then getting it down. And you, and you see it with that kid you were referencing, like he's airborne forever. Like we're mm-hmm. in the air forever. And then the ground contact time, times are longer because of that, because, yeah. because he has to recover from each of those because they're just so ridiculously long and high.
1: It's fascinating. I cannot wait to dig into that. I can't even tell you how excited I am. Um, (laughs) What if you have a person, an athlete who's wore these terrible shoes for forever, and Mm -hmm. then you're about to go put them on a track and their feet are obviously not conditioned uh, at all. They're not ready to sprint. On, on their feet? How do you go about uh, managing that with an individual who perhaps has these feet that are not even used to being on the ground in the first place, but then they have to sprint yeah. on them?
0: Uh, well, first off, I'm going to probably use a, a softer surface to start hmm. um, than the track. I honestly don't utilize the track all that much even right now. Um, I, I use turf mostly, and I might even start with grass, something that's going to um, prolong or no, no, sorry, not prolonged, something that's going to uh, allow forces to dissipate a little bit. Yeah. Because um, regardless of whether we're using, whichever model we're using, whether we're pushing or whether we're not, we're still absorbing a lot of forces on ground contacts and sprinting. Mm. And so I'm going to use, I'm going to use a softer surface to start, not sand. Some people go to sand. That's too much. Now we're, we're getting, in my opinion, almost nothing out of that. Unless you're yeah, concerned.
1: there's um, no, there's no like, there's no sense there.
0: Well, yeah. And then we have to push even longer and it's just, it's just stupid in my opinion. Mm -hmm. But again, I, I shouldn't, I shouldn't be so rude, but (laughs) it's it's just not what I do. Um, But uh, I think grass is is a great place to start. Now I know where you're coming from because Sean has been great about talking about how in the search for stability through the foot, we're going to collapse medially uh, to find the ground. Right. I Mm -hmm. think that's what you're referencing. Right. Um, And I don't know how to reconcile these things, because if a Darien, and this is the thing, a Darien is speaking such from a lens of performance only. Yes. uh, And and Sean, I think comes at it from a mixture and Mm -hmm. then you come at it from like totally, I think more of a health standpoint, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, when we talk about the health performance continuum.
1: Right. Um, That's a good thing to get into.
0: Yeah. It's, it's tough for me to say, if I need someone to perform, then I need to, I need to get, get them to be, get used to feeling their transverse arch. I'm going to get them out of the shoe.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: that's what I would say right now. Um, however, if, if they're not comfortable going barefoot or I'm seeing like some real problems with that, or like, I still can't get transverse arch then yeah, I'm going to keep them in the shoe. That makes sense. You know, mm-hmm. especially if I can get them to get some sort of insole that's going to help with that. Cause that's something Sean always talks about. Yeah. Um, but it's such a fine line. Cause again, it's, what are you after? You know, like who am I working with and what do they want? Because, and right. I think this is a great transition to that. Like, um, we all have our preconceived notions. Like I'm much more performance mindset. I don't perform very well, but I think about it all the time. You yeah. know, <laughs> um, uh, um, uh, you are obviously more of a health mindset and it's interesting to think about like, okay, so this is what my bias is. But when I'm working with this person, what are they trying to get out of this? You know?
1: Right. Right. Yeah. You can talk about, you can talk about maintaining a neutral pelvis and all that good stuff. And they absolutely have performance implications, but at the end of the day, extensions, power extensions, athleticism, but I think there's a, I think there's a common ground. And I think that I think that people tend to push people too far in one direction and the other. Whereas it's just like variability. If you can get into one, then you can get into the other more easily. And if you're too, if you're too far stuck in flexion, you're too far stuck in extension, then you're not going to be able to get to the other end very well. So ultimately like, why don't we just Live in the middle a little bit more why don't we uh, bring ourselves back because if we 're too far on one end, especially like I think if you 're too far into the performance side of things, then you 're going to perhaps get injured and then you whatever for every month you take off, you might spend another month coming back, but at the same time, if you're too far at the health end, then you could be completely limiting your performance, so there has to be you know some yeah. sort of common ground, but at the same time like different problems are going to require different ends of the spectrum, ultimately. And I think this is a really good thing we talked about in that Starbucks that we talked about at this podcast was you opened my eyes to that a little bit more. And for me, it helped me understand my bias of health and how, yes, what I talk about is much more from the health perspective. That is something I talk about a lot that I didn't quite realize until we had that conversation. I'm completely coming at it, or not completely, actually. I would say there's a fair degree of performance enhancement aspect oh, yeah. what I talk yeah. about, but at the end of the day, I'm concerned about with keeping athletes available so that they can perform. Whereas someone like Adrian is, I want this person sprinting as fast as possible right now. And there's nothing wrong with that. But ultimately, there's got to be a balance. And that's why it's good to have different perspectives like this. Because these people, especially people that are listening right now, they can take away some things from both of our perspectives and kind of find their own answer to what works for them. And that's totally fine. Well, and
0: I I love what you're saying right there. Cause I mean, on the performance side of things, it's such an industry and it's such a, it's so boils down so much to money and being the best at the, the opportune moments and all that stuff. And I think associated with that now is working really hard. And when people hear working really hard, they think about pushing tires and swinging sledgehammers on the tires and pulling sleds and, doing all this crazy shit that i mean let's be honest is doing nothing but just throwing a bunch of metabolites into your system (laughs) but (laughs) but, um but um you know and and i think that's great that there's that shift to like where people are seeing the value in training Mm -hmm. but when someone is elite truly elite the ceiling for what i can do on a performance level is so limited this is where some your mindset comes in so handy Mm -hmm. um there's there's not a lot more development to do and to be honest with you the development's probably going to become by instilling more variability into this guy's system yeah. uh, more often than not. So I, I think that the health really goes hand in hand for performance, especially like the elite cream of the crop level. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then let's, you know, regress it down a little bit. Let's talk about, you know, a college athlete that's a fringe NBA player or won't play in the NBA. Um, they might, uh, they might need, and they ha- might have more, uh, you know, up on top on that ceiling that we need to help them get to from a performance basis. Um, mm-hmm and everyone's just so different, man. Like even in the same setting, if you're on an NBA team, all 15 guys are going to need something a little bit different, you know? Right. Um, Right. That bench guy might be a bench guy because his attitude sucks, but he has something there, you know, potentially to be an NBA all-star at some point, but he just doesn't know how to train. And so you're going to need to find a way performance wise Mm -hmm. to get him there. You know, maybe there's, there's something he's missing in his performance that will then help attitude and get him to where he needs to go. You know, and this is, you know, again, just, it's a holistic process, like throughout the entire thing. Right. So definitely,
1: definitely. And I think that, um, when you compare, because how many people really work with elite athletes, like really elite athletes, not no one, no one one does, no one. (laughs) So like, like we could call D one athletes elite and maybe they are in like some relative terms, but like the people that everyone wanted to work with starting out day one in their careers. Uh, Those jobs are so far and few between, and those athletes are so far and few between. Most people that are going to be listening to this or that are going that we're going to reach on social media are going to be high school strength coaches, are going to be low level college strength coaches, uh, or just training general population people. And in my experience, and granted, I am still young, I do not have the grand experience that many other people do, but as far as what I've seen so far, it is. When you take that high school athlete, when you take that low level college athlete, when you take someone who is not a complete and utter disaster in gen pop, then (laughs) these people like don't really, they're different, but they're not that different. You know what I mean? They all tend to, human beings are amazing compensators, but it is in a relatively, I dare say, predictable manner. And there's obviously compensations that can be built on top of compensations, but I really do genuinely believe that the human body is designed to compensate in a pattern that uh, tends to be relatively common and predictable. And from that, you can kind of understand how they could compensate on top of that. And it's easy to get lost in the weeds of like, oh, man, this elbow and this guy's like low back and this guy's knee is all acting up in different ways. But really it's like, well, okay, let's go back to the fundamental problem of how we compensate. And then if you look at it through that lens, then things start to make a lot more sense. And that's the beauty of what I talk about is that it is so complicated at first. It is just overwhelming. You leave a a course, you leave like a PRI course and you're like, man, I'm fried. I'm done. (laughs) (laughs) But the more you do it, you're just like, Oh, it's, it's so simple. It's, and I'll get into that with, with other podcasts, but it's just, um, it it really is. it, It is amazing that we Uh, as human beings, like we all have very different things going on in our lives. We all come from very different genetic backgrounds, but we're still human beings. And we still tend to compensate in predictable patterns because we're designed pretty much the same way with our organ structure, with how our limbs are, with how our brains are. And then from that, you can just deduce what happens from there. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And that's such a good point.
1: I mean, and I think like you said, if the people
0: who are listening to this, podcast like even if you're working with extreme like i was a division three director of strength conditioning for a year and Mm -hmm. um it's it's a challenge to to get 20 teams in and out with good quality training uh consistently it's very difficult um but just even like now knowing what i know now and then thinking back what i would have done differently just implementing a few of these principles and really hammering them home i think it just some, and you can, you can find simple solutions for this. I mean, I sat down with my roommate just an hour ago and had literally just made three things up on the spot for him to get his left abs and like, you know, relieve himself of some, some SI joint pain on the right side. Mm-hmm. Inhibit the, you know, inhibit the right side, boom, SI pain gone. Like, you know, on the, you know, and then, you know, the right, the right back side, you know, okay, well, let's lock down or, you know, let's lock down your left abs and get some air into your rib cage on the right side just come up with a couple of simple things like that and boom, we're, we're in business, you know, it's not, you know, hundred percent better, but we're on the right track. And then again, like your knowledge of this far exceeds mine, but even I, now that I understand the simplicity of some of the internal workings and the basic principles, I can just make stuff up
1: and be creative with it and
0: I can make things happen for people, you know, and uh, I think that's really powerful. Um, and, and it lets people know that there's, bigger things going on than getting someone squat
1: bigger or something like that. You know? Yes. Yes. Because at some point a squat is a better squat is only going to enhance performance so much Mm -hmm. so we can go and we can chase. Cause like think about an advanced trainee who's been going at it for, you know, they have eight to 10 years of weight room experience. They're super strong relative to their body weight and compared to other athletes in the field. Cause I think that's the key. Like what are the best athletes squatting? who are the similar body weight of who you're training. And then, okay, those are probably the numbers we want to be around. But if they're around that, then it's like, it's going to take so much bandwidth of your program to get that person's squat, bench, or deadlift a little bit better when you could spend it on variability. You could spend it working on things like vision, things that people aren't even really thinking about. But really, the weight room is a fantastic tool if you're creative enough to train just a variety of things other than just raw strength numbers, so yep. um that's I guess a different topic for a different day, but I think that that hopefully that gives people food for thought of like there's just a lot more going on that we can work on and improve that will make a better performance enhancement than ten more pounds on a four hundred and fifty yep. pound squat
0: <laughs> yeah, no dude and that that you know that opens up another can of worms, which again we can we can hold off for another conversation, but that gets into you know training, you know, tendons, training ligaments and what is weight training doing to those things, which we need to have some measure of stiffness in when we go out to sprint and perform yes. our athletic movements, you know, and that, that goes down a whole nother rabbit hole. And we could, we could do that another time. Cause obviously I think our, our time is, is, is running short here, but, um, no, man, I, I really appreciate you, uh, you coming on. This is something I think we need to do frequently. I, I really got a lot out of this as I always do with you. And, hmm. um, um, uh, You know, hopefully we can we can keep doing this, and hopefully we'll get some feedback from some people, maybe some questions, and uh, and hit another round of this at some point.
1: That would be awesome, man. I appreciate you, Jack, and I can't wait to do this again. It's a ton of fun. I'm having a blast.
0: Hey, yeah, thanks a lot, man. Oh, by the way, wait before we before oh. you roll out.
1: Oh yeah, I'm plug not used all to your
0: stuff, man. <laughs> plug all your stuff. Oh, God. the Connor is a, is a social media. <laughs> The wizard he he reached uh, me in one of my things i got more likes on that than i have in like the last five thousand tweets i've done
1: um <laughs> uh, yeah so my twitter and username and handles are c-o-n-o-r connor like Connor mcgregor underscore harris h-a-r-r-i-s another underscore after that um i do online training i do coaching consultations uh and i also have my uh coaches club which yeah. was released and uh february 1st is when it came out so we are on the third course now which is advanced respiration so if you care about this breathing stuff if you think it's cool if you like the pelvis stuff there is more than enough in the coaches club so go check (laughs) that out and uh, i'd love to have you no matter if you're a coach athlete or anything
0: nice that's awesome man yeah and i've heard I need to get on the coaches club. I've heard good things about it. Um, and and that will be done as soon as I get a little more uh, cash. In
1: the, the I know that struggle.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, um, uh, no, man, that's awesome. And then, then for, for your uh, listeners, my, you can follow me on Twitter at Jack Anderson, I, 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 and then you can follow me on Instagram at Jack dot Anderson. some asshole took the, <laughs> uh, the one from me so I had to put the period and what a disaster oh, that is. Yeah. Uh, you can follow me there. I don't, I don't crank out the, the massive amounts of content that, that Connor does, but I am. Yeah, I just got a deal with Team Builder. I'm gonna be writing for them. Should have a couple articles coming out this month and I have like three or four more in the can for them. So if you ever Hell wanna yeah. hear anything, any of my weird incoherent ramblings via, <laughs> uh, I guess you wouldn't hear it, you'd read it. Um, uh, you, could, you could feel free to do that. But um, yeah, man, this is a blast. Let's definitely do it again.
1: Absolutely, looking forward to it, man.